What's up, guys? <clears throat> kind of a funny ending, right? We're going to see the book of Jonah ends pretty much just like that. If you've got a Bible, please open it to Jonah chapter 4. Man, it has been a pleasure to be with you guys this weekend, and I've been very thankful uh, for our time together. This is our last time together. Everyone say, aw. Aw. But Lord willing, we will see each other again one day. I'll miss you too. Was that you? You right there? What's your name? Angel. You're my angel. I'll miss you. I just said his name. It's not that big of a deal. (laughs) Jonah chapter 4. Let's spend one more time together in God's word. We've seen Jonah so far rebel and run uh, against God and away from God. And then we've seen God meet him with his sovereign power and authority in the belly of the fish and turn his heart towards him. And then we've seen Jonah finally go do what he was called to do in the first place. And we've seen the massive supernatural response of the city of Nineveh turning in repentance and experiencing the revival of God. And we are gonna pick up the story in chapter four and we're going to end the story with Jonah's reaction to what happened in Nineveh and it's not what you might expect. I don't like, now bear with me here, I don't like two things. I don't like going out to see Christmas lights. Do you know that this is a thing? Like, okay, so don't misunderstand me. I'm not like Ebenezer Scrooge. I love Christmas. I like looking at Christmas lights. It's fine. What I don't like is taking a dedicated trip to go out in the car or to go walk somewhere just to observe the Christmas lights that I would normally see just when I'm driving by casually. I think it's a waste of time. Don't at me. Anyone with me? Total waste of time. Listen, I'm going to see them when I'm driving by anyways. Spare me. Here's the deal, I don't like driving, I don't like going somewhere to see Christmas lights, and I also don't like the Phoenix Zoo. Now, hold on, hold on. It's not that I don't like zoos, like the zoo is fine. I don't like the Phoenix Zoo, because we have two little kids in our family, which means my wife buys like the past thing, and she goes like three times a week, because it's the best thing you can do as a young mom, stick your two kids in the stroller, walk around and see the lions, it's amazing. I don't like going there because I feel like I've been there like a billion times and it's the same thing every time. I'm like, oh yeah, there's an animal, there's an animal, like let's go home. I don't like going to see Christmas lights, I don't really like the zoo, and guess what? To my great pleasure, of course the Phoenix Zoo has an event called Zoo Lights. So, you can bet the dutiful father and the loving husband that I am, we go to Zoo Lights every year. Now. We went to Zoo Lights this year, and we are pulling up to the zoo, and for some reason, this year, it was like bonkers. We are a mile away from the zoo, and we are in dead stop, gridlock traffic, and I'm thinking to myself, it's gonna be like well over an hour before we even pull in the parking lot. It's approaching bedtime already, and we've got our two little kids in the back seat. Titus is potty trained, praise the Lord, and from the back seat, I hear him say, Mom, I need to poop. And I'm like, well, that's not good. 
Because we're in the middle of nowhere and we are an hour away from this parking lot. So here, here's the glories of parenting. This kid has like got to poop. And the way I know it is he says it like 10 times in three seconds. He goes, mom, I need to poop. And then there's like a little silence and he goes, I need to poop. I need to poop, I need to poop. He says it three times back to back. So eventually, to solve the problem, my wife pulls out a smaller diaper that's for his little brother, puts it on him in the car, he squats down in the back and just lets it rip. So we're sitting in the car, poopy diaper, long line, waiting to get to my favorite event in the whole world, zoo lights. I wish I was making this story up. This is a true story. We, we make it like another 15 minutes. We're probably, about a, we're probably about 15 minutes from the zoo and Titus says, mom, I have to spit up, <laughs> which is what he calls vomiting. He's like, I have to spit up. So she hangs him out of the passenger side window <laughs> and he pukes his guts out. And I am thinking to myself, this is the best night of my life. I've never done anything better than this. So he throws up and he's like, oh, I'm feeling so good. He tells us he's like feeling so much better. So we, we make it finally into the parking lot. We put him in the stroller. We're like, okay, let's try. Let's see if we can just like go for a few minutes into the zoo. We make it for a few minutes into the zoo and he throws up again and we're like, we're calling this a night. We are done. Now, the reason I tell you all of that is because during all of that time, and I, I don't even say this to like make myself out to be a hero. I did not complain one time. Praise the Lord. I did not complain one time. Do you know why? Here's the whole point of telling you all of that. The reason I didn't complain is because when you love someone, you love what they love. When you love someone, you love what they love and I love my wife, and I love my two little boys, and they love Zoo Lights. So I went to Zoo Lights genuinely. I kind of make fun of how much I don't like it. I went to Zoo Lights joyfully because they love it, and so I love it. And if we belong to God, if we are in relationship with God, if God is our Father, and Jesus is our Savior, and the Spirit is our helper, if we belong to the triune God in saving relationship, then we need to learn to love what He loves. Our heart needs to beat with His heart if we are truly going to be His children. We need to begin to look like him and reflect the things that he cares about and go after the things that he's going after. And that's what we wanna talk about as we end this book of Jonah. In chapter four, we're gonna see Jonah not show us how to love what God loves, but actually the opposite. Jonah's what's gonna be called, a, he's like a foil. He is a negative example. He's gonna show us how not to do it. And as we learn from him, we're going to learn how we can share the heart of God, basically if we do the exact opposite of what Jonah does. It's a funny way to end the story, but it teaches us this powerful lesson. If I am saved by God, my heart should beat with God. If I'm saved by God, my heart should beat with God. Now the question is, how do I know if my heart beats with God? How do I know if I love what God loves? Well, I wanna show you three aspects of God's heart. Not five, three. Three aspects of God's heart. We'll take them one at a time. Here's the first one. I reflect God's heart when I delight in mercy. 
I reflect God's heart when I delight in mercy. We ended the message last night talking about receiving a powerful mercy. This is exactly what we saw happen at the end of chapter three to the Ninevites. And the, the text records that God relented from the disaster that he said he would do to them and he did not do it. Now, this is every preacher's dream. Think about this. You go to a place where you have, like, uh, you have an opportunity to share the love of God and to preach the good news, and you walk in, and there's, there's many, many, there's tens of thousands of people, and you preach the briefest message that you have ever preached. It is eight words, actually five in the Hebrew language, and the whole entire city falls down, massive response, huge revival, everyone gets saved, they run to God, everything changes you would imagine that the preacher would be like, this is, the best, this is the best work I've ever done in my life. This is the best preaching engagement I've ever had. I'm a rock star, look at us go. You and me, God, fist bump, we're crushing it. Look at us go, but not Jonah. Jonah, in fact, responds the exact opposite way. Jonah is livid. He is livid. Look, look at what the text says but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. It displeased him exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, this is so interesting because the same grace that Jonah has experienced that saved him is the same grace that makes him very angry. Hello? It's the same grace that makes him angry. What, what makes God happy makes Jonah furious. And think about how out of sync this means that Jonah and God are. God is delighted to show mercy and Jonah is mad about it. He's gritting his teeth, he's got a furrowed brow, he is angry. Now. What could make Jonah so angry? Think, think about it, maybe a couple reasons that might not naturally occur to you. Maybe it's like nationalistic pride. He loves the nation of Israel so much and he believes actually with a twinge of racism and ethnocentricity, he thinks like no one except Jews deserves the love of God. No one except Israel, the chosen people, deserves the kindness and the grace that God has to offer. So maybe that makes him angry. Maybe it's actually like self-preservation. Think about this for a moment. I told you in the first message that the Assyrian Empire, they were enemies against the nation of Israel. And comparatively, Israel was small and Assyria was big. Israel was mostly peaceful and Assyria was violent. And so think about how angry it might make Jonah to think of the fact, hey, what if the Assyrian Empire is spared by the grace of God and then they turn on the nation of Israel and they destroy us and I'm the one who's responsible for bringing the grace that saved their lives? Like, think about it. What if they have this momentary turn and God spares them instead of wiping them off the map, but then they decide they wanna go back to their ways and they wipe out Israel and I'm the one responsible. Thanks a lot, God. How about this, his social image. People in Israel hated the Ninevites. They did not like the Assyrians. And he, 
not only is the guy who went and brought the love and grace of God to the people that the nation of Israel hated, not only that, but now he looks like a liar because he walked into the city and he said 40 days and it's gonna be destroyed and it didn't happen. So he looks like a failure, he looks like an idiot, he said it and it didn't come to pass. And how about this, how about it's embarrassing to the nation of Israel? Because at this time, the nation of Israel was not doing so hot in their obedience to God. They were living in rebellion, they were living in idolatry, they were walking away from the things of God, and all of a sudden, this pagan nation that worships idols and wants nothing to do with God, as a whole group of people, they collectively turn from their evil ways and turn towards God in repentance, and they therefore embarrass the covenant people of God by putting them to shame, doing what they should be doing. Jonah's angry, probably for some combination of all of these reasons. And what's really interesting is how he justifies his anger. He looks at God and he's gonna give him the reason, not only that he's angry right now, but actually it's the same reason that he ran in the first place. Look at what he says, verse two. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is what he says. He says the reason I'm so angry and the reason I ran in the first place, and what he gives as the reason is he quotes God's most famous self-description in all of the Old Testament. If you read that little section there when he says, I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. If that sounds kind of familiar, it's because the New Testament repeats that over and over and over and over again as a primary descriptor of the character and the nature of God. The first time we ever see it is in the story of Exodus, when God rescues his people from Egypt in slavery, and he takes them out, and out on the, in the foothills of Mount Sinai, as Moses goes up onto the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, the people down on the plain, they walk away from God, they dishonor God, they worship idols, they ruin the whole thing, and when Moses comes down, he finds that the grace of God and the mercy of God meets those people almost in the same way that it met Nineveh, when God said, I'm gonna destroy these people, and then he relented from the disaster when they repented. And it's like God looks at, Moses looks at God and he says, what's going on? Why are you doing this? And God's answer is, I am the Lord, the Lord. I am Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Moses is like, God, what are you doing? And God says, this is who I am. I am slow to anger. I am quick to give mercy. I am abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the core of who I am. This is what makes me God. This is my love for people that fail me. It is the very reason that the nation of Israel even exists, and it for sure is the reason that Jonah is even alive right now, because God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God is quick to give mercy, and yet it is the very reason that Jonah is angry. I mean, think about it. The very thing that makes God, God, makes Jonah angry. 
Their, their hearts are not beating in sync. They're out of alignment. And so Jonah, he's a little dramatic in this passage. He says, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Verse four, and the Lord said, this is such a reasonable question. <laughs> do you do well to be angry? Is it right for you to be mad right now? Here, at this moment, he doesn't even respond to the question. He ignores God altogether. But I wonder for you, are you moved by the mercy of God? Do you delight in the mercy of God? Are you overwhelmed by the grace that you have received? Because I wonder, if you are overwhelmed by the grace that you have received, wouldn't you joyfully and regularly and quickly give that same grace away to other people? If you're, if you're so stunned by the mercy of what God has done in your life and for your life, wouldn't you want other people to experience the same good thing? And this is what Jonah is totally missing. The grace that saved him is the grace that he wants to stay with him. He doesn't want anyone else to experience it, only him. We should delight in God's mercy, the mercy that rescues us and the mercy that can rescue anyone else. And if we do, we will reflect the heart of God. We will love what he loves. Here's the second way to reflect the heart of God. I reflect God's heart when number two, I love the lost. I love the lost. The story carries on and this is the final paragraph in the entire chapter, in the entire book. It says this, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So Jonah gets his stuff together, he leaves the city, he goes out to the east side, he makes a booth, which means he's getting comfortable, he's gonna stay there for a while, and he is waiting to see what God will do to the city. And in his heart, he is hoping that God will, God will come back to the city and actually destroy it. He's hoping that what he hoped had come to pass in the beginning will actually come to pass, and he's waiting to see what will happen. Verse six, now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. He's like manic depressive in this story. He's like super angry and then he's super happy and then he's super angry again. He is like riding the emotional roller coaster. Super happy because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Remember I told you in the first message, every single thing in this story is obedient to the will and the purpose and the command of God from a giant fish in the ocean, large enough to swallow a man, to a tiny little worm. It says God appointed a worm, and I love what it says, to attack the plant. He's like, sick him! <laughs> and the worm goes over to the plant, and he's like, just attacks the plant. Gets the plant, kills it, little worm doing God's work, kills the plant, and it withers. Verse eight, when the sun arose, God appointed a scorching east wind. Okay, so not just the worm, but now the wind. God's like, hey wind, go make Jonah miserable. And it does. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But Jonah, but God said to Jonah, do you do well 
to be angry for the plant. He asked him almost the exact same question, but now in particular with this, this episode of the plant, the plant that God made to grow up to shade Jonah and then sent the worm to destroy so that Jonah was in the sun. He says, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant. You have compassion on the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Now, if you're like me, you read that and you're like, verse 12? It kind of makes you feel like, it says, shouldn't I pity Nineveh? It's a huge city. There's, there's 120,000 people and a bunch of cows. Fade to black. Cut scene. Book over. It's like, and a bunch of cows. Curtain comes down. <laughs> and you're kind of like, oh, <laughs> what is happening? Like, does my study Bible have a verse 12? What's going on here? It's a very strange way to end the book, but I think it's on purpose. And here's one of the reasons I think when the Holy Spirit inspired this book, he left it on such an abrupt, strange ending. This is the best way I could think to explain it. Have you ever been arguing with somebody and you've been like bickering back and forth and maybe it's getting like a little bit more hostile as it goes and the energy and the volume is like rising a little bit and you're saying things to each other that are getting progressively more and more mean, and then somebody says something, somebody says something just like really biting and really wicked, and then the other person responds with silence. Have, have you ever experienced this? Where you're kind of bickering back and forth, and na 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 and then you say, well, I've never liked you anyways. and the person doesn't respond, like they don't fight back, they don't yell back, they don't say anything, and your words just hang in the air, and it's like the silence is an indictment on what the words actually meant and said. Do you know what I'm talking about? They don't respond, and it is in their lack of response that you feel the weight of the words. I think that's kind of what's supposed to happen here. Like the question that God asks is supposed to ring out into the silence and just like hang there so that it sits on you and you kind of feel the weight of it. I think here's the point of this funny, abrupt ending. God tells Jonah, hey Jonah, you didn't make the plant. God uses the plant as an object lesson for Jonah. He says, you didn't even make the plant, I made the plant. And yet you are so angry, you didn't tend the plant, you didn't care for the plant, you didn't make it come up, you didn't water it, you didn't feed it, you didn't do anything, but you are so mad when it withers away. And then he says this, the, the, the plant is a plant. I mean, it, it's a little green leafy thing that's here one second and it's gone the next. And you are so passionate about it. You have pity on it. You have compassion for it. It is an inanimate object that doesn't matter for anything. The city of Nineveh is full of human beings that are made in my image and I love them. 
This is what God is saying to Jonah. He's saying, Jonah, you are so passionate that this plant would survive, and yet you want all of the human beings in Nineveh to be annihilated and to perish. Where's your heart at, Jonah? God God essentially says to Jonah, Jonah, how exactly do you think I should feel about the Ninevites? I, I made them in my image, and I love them. They are desperately lost, and they need me. And because I love them, I desire to come to their rescue. I love the lost. Jonah, do you? God says, I've got a plan to reconcile and to redeem all of creation, cows included, and I'm doing it through my redemptive mission in the world. Do you even want to be a part of that? Do you care about the same things that I care about? You care about the plant. I care about human beings that I made in my image. This is what's so staggering about the love of God. He doesn't love people who are good to him. He loves his enemies. This is, this is what the Bible says should shock us about the love of God. <laughs> that he loves people, not who are kind of neutral with him, he loves people who are his enemies. He loves people who hate him. This is what the Bible says in Romans chapter five and verse eight. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were living in rebellion against God, while we were running away from God, while we wanted nothing to do with God, while we were dishonoring and disobeying God, it was there and then that God gave his love to us. We were his enemies and he loved us. And now God still loves other people who are his enemies and may even be our enemies. And he calls us to love them too. In an ever-increasing way in our society, I don't know if you guys are in touch with this, but in an ever-increasing way, we are being taught to think in us versus them categories. Are, are, you, are you aware of this? Like This is happening all across our world. It's happening socially, it's happening politically, economically, spiritually, geographically. We're just being taught to believe that You and the people like you are right and good and true, and anyone who disagrees with you is evil and wrong and bad, and you should hate them. I mean, if you've taken like five seconds and watched the news or scrolled a social media feed, it is just filled with hate and division, and it's us versus them and tribalistic camps where we're the good guys and you're the bad guys, and I don't care what lines we have to draw, we're just drawing as many lines as possible. And I'm just here to tell you that those who belong in the kingdom of God cannot buy into that mindset in the way that we think about people. The kingdom of God is not us versus them. In the kingdom of God, our enemies are never other people. It is not us versus them. The kingdom of God is us for them. The the very reason that God rescues people and doesn't whisk them away to heaven but leaves them on earth is so that they can be a witness and a testimony to his transforming love and his power and his grace and his mercy for people who want nothing to do with God and don't know him at all. It's the very reason that we are still on planet Earth if we belong to Jesus, because he's not done seeking and saving the lost, and he wants to use us to do it. 
So if our heart is gonna beat with God's heart, if we're gonna love what God loves, then we need to love lost people. And if there's anything in your life or in your world that just makes you look at people who don't know Jesus and look at them with scorn and disgust and say, wow, you guys are, you guys are unworthy, you're vile, you disgust me, I want nothing to do with you, how could you be so dumb? And you look down on people who don't know Jesus or you separate yourself from people who don't know Jesus because you don't even want to be around them, then you do not love what God loves. If your heart is not drawn with compassion to go to the people who don't know Jesus and to love them in the name of Jesus and share Jesus with them, then your heart is not like God's heart because that's how you got saved. You wanted nothing to do with God and God came after you. God sent somebody to be in your life when you were an enemy of God and they loved you and they shared the gospel with you and they shared the word of God with you and God rescued you. Thank God God loves lost people because that's how all of us met him. He still loves lost people and now he wants to use the people that he has found to rescue the people that are still lost. Do you love lost people? God does. I want to finish this way. If you delight in mercy and if you love the lost, it will lead you to do one very simple thing. It will lead you to do a lot of things, but here's one very clear one. And it's the third way we reflect God's heart. It's this, I reflect God's heart when I share the gospel. When I share the gospel. Romans chapter 10 says this. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. That verse right there is a wonderful summary, actually, of the book of Jonah. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For, think about how good this news is, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The Bible tells us in Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is God's good news for the world. And I think our world could use a little bit of good news. If you're tuned in to any sort of media outlet at all, it's just an endless and brutal parade of bad news and tragedy and darkness and sickness and violence and everything that's wrong with the world. Do you know why? Because it sells. It makes people afraid, it makes people click, it makes people engage, and so the world is just pumping out all of this bad news, bad news, bad news, and God's like, hey, I've got good news. Anyone want some good news? Here's some good news. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is God's good news that he proclaims over the whole world that anyone from anywhere at any time with any background who has done anything and speaks any language and looks like anything, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. They'll be rescued from the penalty of their sin. They'll be forgiven and healed. They'll be adopted into God's family. They'll be rescued by the love of God. This is available to anyone anywhere. 
What a wonderful piece of good news for our world to hear. The question is, how will someone experience such amazing good news? How will they encounter it? Well, Romans 10 actually tells us. How will someone experience the radical saving news of what Jesus has done and how will it be applied to their lives? Well, actually, you can just reverse engineer this chain of rhetorical questions that he asks and you can find out. He says, how will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe if they haven't heard? How will they hear without someone preaching? And how will they preach unless they're sent? It's like a chain of events. So if you reverse it from the back, it goes like this. People hear when someone is sent. People hear when someone is sent out into the world, just like you will be in a few short hours when you go down the hill and you leave this beautiful oasis of Hume Lake and the amazing Christian environment that it is, and you will go back into your schools, back into your neighborhoods, back into your families, back into your sports teams. You, in effect, will be sent. And then the people who are sent, they preach. Those people who have been sent out, they speak up about Jesus. What, what a, you may think to yourself, well, I'm not a preacher. Like, hey, you've got the microphone on your head. You've got the little Britney thing going on. I'm just like, I just go to school and I play sports and I'm, I'm a mathlete. I do whatever I do. I'm not a preacher. You're a preacher. I'm not a preacher. That, that's just not true. Though you may not be called vocationally to, to stand up in front of a bunch of people and explain the Bible and call people to faith in Christ, maybe that's not gonna be your job. You nonetheless, if you know Jesus, are equipped with his message and sent out into the world as an ambassador so that you can tell people what Jesus Christ has done and invite them to experience the same saving benefits that you have experienced. That is the job of every Christian. And it's to do it verbally. It's to do it vocally. You've heard the phrase, preach the gospel when necessary, use words. It's a load of garbage. Ain't nobody meeting Jesus because you're nice to an old lady and you help her across the street. Nobody is gonna come to saving faith in Christ and be rescued of their sins because you are a polite person. Maybe, and hopefully, if you are nice to old ladies and you are polite and you do love and you are self-sacrificial and you have a life that backs up your message, hopefully you will have the credibility to then open your mouth and say the name of Jesus and tell people what he has accomplished. But until you do that, you cannot say you're sharing the gospel with somebody. You do not share the gospel through nameless acts of kindness. You share the gospel by looking a human being in the face and saying Jesus died to save you from sin and he is alive now at the right hand of the Father and if you trust in him, you can be saved. That's how you share the gospel with another person. We overcomplicate it, we put all kinds of barriers between it, but it's really easy. You look at somebody and you say Jesus died to rescue you. Will you accept his gift of grace? Will you trust in him and be forgiven? That's how we share the gospel. It's called preaching. Now, it doesn't have to be like this with a microphone on a stage. It can be in a coffee shop. It can be over the kitchen table. It can be anywhere at any time when you speak up about who Jesus is and what he has done. And then the last two, look what happens. People get sent and the people who are sent, they preach. And the people who preach, their message is heard. People are saved through hearing. People receive the message of the finished work of Jesus, and then the last step in the chain, they believe. The sovereign, saving king of heaven and earth opens people's hearts to receive the love of Christ and to accept his gift of grace through the gospel. 
And this is how it happens. This is how the heart of God is expressed for a lost and dying world. God rescues people and then he sends them and the people who are sent open their mouth and when they open their mouth, the power of God attends their message by the spirit of God and people hear it and they believe it and then the chain starts all over again and the people who hear and receive and believe, they are then the ones who are sent and go out and this is how God multiplies the kingdom of God in the world. This is how God makes disciples. This is how God gets the good news to the ends of the earth. He does it through people like you and like me. And so when we are content to sit on the bench of the Christian life and trust the professional Christians to get the gospel out, we are missing out on the heart of God. If you keep your mouth shut about Jesus because you think my youth pastor will tell him or my parents will tell him, or some super Christian will tell them. You're just missing out on what God wants to do in your life and through your life. God wants to use you as his messenger. God wants his heart to beat in your heart and he wants it to lead you to share his good news with the world. And if you do, this text says, how beautiful are the feet of those who carry the good news. Feet would have been dusty and dirty back in that day, but they were beautiful, not for what they looked like, but for what they carried. This is a, it's a quotation of the Old Testament when the nation of Israel was living in exile. They were separated from God and from their homeland, and people would come running over the mountains with the good news that they were being brought back from exile and welcomed back into their homeland, homeland. and they said, how beautiful are the feet of those who carry good news like that. And I'm telling you here today, young person, your feet can be beautiful, not for what they look like, but for what they carry, which is the redeeming message of the Lord Jesus Christ to people who desperately need to hear it. People on your street, people in your school, people you sit next to in class, people who are on your teams, they need to hear from you that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross as a substitute to pay for our sin and that he rose from the dead so he could give the gift of salvation and forgiveness and eternal life to anyone who would repent and believe. This is the message that we steward and it's the message that we share. The question is, who needs to hear it from you? Who needs to hear the gospel message from you? I recognize that it's, it feels scary to share the gospel. There's maybe you're getting nervous even thinking about it right now, but it'll never get easier. Like, it's okay for it to be kind of hard. It's okay to embrace the discomfort and to speak up anyways and to honor the Lord. There's a million objections and a million reasons why we don't do it, and every single one of them crumples like a house of cards when we think about it in light of eternity, that what's at stake is eternal life and eternal death, heaven and hell, the love of God or the wrath of God. This is what's at stake for people when they interact with Jesus. If I'm saved by God, my heart should beat with God. I'll just finish this way. A lady um, at my church about three years ago her name was Lisa, and she passed away. 
and uh, we held her funeral service, her memorial at our church, and part of the memorial was an open mic, and there was a, there was a lot of people in the room, probably this many or even a, a little bit more than are in here, and they opened the microphone for people to share stories of how Lisa had impacted their life. And for the next, for the next hour and a half, people streamed up to that microphone to tell this room full of people how Lisa had loved them, had shared the gospel with them, had sacrificed to serve them, had cared for them in the name of Jesus, there were people who were lost, who were walking in the darkness, who didn't know God at all, and they stood up at the microphone and said, I am here today as a follower of Jesus because Lisa told me about Jesus. And I just remember sitting there in the funeral and thinking, Lisa is gone and she's with the Lord, but her life is echoing with kingdom impact right now in the world. And the life that she lived, because she lived it for the Lord Jesus and she lived it in faithful service to the King of Kings, her life is not just gonna count for like five years or for 10 years, her life will count forever. And I remember thinking to myself, I want my life to count forever. I want people to be in heaven because I was alive and I was willing to open my mouth. I wanna change eternity because God empowered me and sent me and I was willing to love what he loved and have his heart beat within me and do the things that he wanted and live on mission with him. I want my life to count. Lisa's life counted and your life can count. But it's not some magical leap between where you are right now and becoming Lisa, who's like a spiritual giant who makes a huge impact. It's not a magical leap, and you don't get there when you grow up. You get there because you decide to be faithful and obedient in the little things right now. So you can just do away with the notion that one day when you grow up, then you will become spiritual or then you will become obedient. You've gotta start now. Walk in obedience and faithfulness. Live on the mission. Be courageous. Speak up. Share the love of God. Delight in his mercy and love the lost. And your life can count forever. Your life can count forever. A guy named C.T. Studd wrote this poem. His name is Epic. He wrote this poem. This is just a little snippet of it. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say, "'Twas worth it all." Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has burned out for thee. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you lavish your love upon us, that you give your mercy and your grace and your kindness to undeserving people like us. Holy Spirit, I pray even now you would capture our hearts with your big purposes for the world, for our lives and for our sphere of influence and for our cities and our churches and our country and the world. 
God, I pray we would see your mission to love and to seek and to save the lost. And I pray we would joyfully not only receive that grace, but then extend that grace by participating in what you are doing. God, give us courage, give us love, help us to love what you love, to think the way you think, to have our heart beat with your heart, and I pray as you do, that you would use the young people in this room to make an impact on your kingdom that will last forever. God, I pray that many, many years from now, when people look back on our lives, they would be able to say it counted for eternity because of the fact that we were obedient, because we responded to the call, because we were faithful, and because we followed you. We love you, God, and we pray these things because we know only you can do them. So Holy Spirit, would you just have free reign in the hearts and in the minds and in the lives of all those who are gathered here today, all of us, God, we submit to you, we depend on you, we trust you, and we pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus, amen.